Hello, and welcome to The Y Word. My name's Ian Hawkins. This is the podcast that gets under the skin of the people that are changing the world and finds out why they do what they do. Coming up on the programme, you're going to hear this. Your point of, like, you know, cheating um, being done onto you, absolutely, that's a, that's a risk of all change. Um, that's about how good you are at communicating that purpose. Is it authentic? Is it credible? Do people believe what you're saying? Is it change for change's sake? There, there will ultimately be scenarios where headcount will be reduced because automation can take over. With an organisation of our size and scale, you can imagine the, the, the number of processes, reports, the, the mechanics of operating the business. If we can introduce automation to a number of those processes, the net impact will be significant. This, this hysteria sells papers, it's great click rate, but it, it, it's, it's ludicrous in my view. As you will have heard from those excerpts, we have had a bit of trouble with the sound on this one. May I say, less than optimal recording conditions for both of us. But given the choice between letting you hear it and chucking it in the bin, I thought we covered some really interesting ground about automation, about process excellence, about operational excellence and diversity and how those things all fit together. So, me from the past, do your intro. Today's guest has been with Serco, one of the world's largest providers of public services to governments, services which include health, transport, justice and immigration, defence and citizen services. As change and culture lead, my guest works with people in operational excellence to help them work better, more efficiently, smarter. Ed Jervis, welcome to The Y Word. Uh, hi there, thanks for having me. Great to have you, Ed. So, Ed, just give me a quick overview. What does operational excellence actually mean? So, we're looking um, within Serco at a program of operational excellence. I don't actually work directly for the OPEX team. I, I worked with them for about a year and now I've moved out to justice and immigration, part of the business, looking at mobilization and transition. But there is an undercurrent or there's a backbone of operational excellence in everything that we do within Circo, which is looking at process efficiency, um, understanding and removing potential um, issues, um, and how we can quickly adapt to uh, to a better way of working. And I think operational excellence is one of those things that lots of businesses do, isn't it? Uh, lots of organizations, especially large organizations, because it's trying to it's trying to manage all of those little things that people do. Day to day. There's two main aspects to it for me anyway. You know, one is your significant improvement initiatives. You know, how do you take something that's that's broken or underperforming and you know improve and change um, the outcome or the direction of that? But the second thing, and one of the most powerful uh, pieces for me, is the concept of marginal gains. Because actually, if we change a culture and we get a buy-in from a from an operational um, culture perspective of everybody making uh, marginal gains throughout the business, collectively, the the end result of that, the, the net product of that, is is often so much bigger. There is always this sort of tension, isn't there, between doing those small changes that are that accumulate over time, and then going in with a scorched earth policy. So, which which do you think works better? They're 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 symbiotic in my view. You know, there are things that you know when they're broken, they do need a direct fix. And actually, operational excellence is at its most powerful when you don't know the solution. That's that's the difference between sort of business and continuing 
continuous improvement and operational excellence. We don't know the solution oftentimes. And the mistake that, that many organizations, um, you know, make is going in with a, with a, you know, a free, um, sort of, uh, destined view of, of what the solution needs to look like. And actually it's that profiling and that deep dive into the specific problems, um, that allows you to select either um, you know, an appropriate solution or a range of appropriate solutions based on, on what you found. So that's that's the key difference for me in terms of OPEX. However, when we talk about selling operational excellence and, and, and business improvement into an organization, there is absolutely no doubt that getting each individual focused on how they can make a difference for the organization, because they're the subject matter experts in their field. So no matter how much you come in with the, the toolbox, the technique, and you know, um, you know, all of the all of the slick OPEX solution type stuff. The bottom line is that you know the, the individual who's been doing the job for years is a much bigger subject matter expert than you'll ever be. And if we switch these people on to how to identify issues, how to properly define problems, and how to um, you know implement and deploy solutions specific to those issues at scale across a, a, a business. You're then into the sweet spot. That's where we're really, you know, um, you know, looking at a significant improvement across the group. The problem is, though, isn't it? Is is that trying to do it at scale? Because you say I do this in my particular way. How do you get it to scale so that everybody does it in a in the same particular way that, that works? Right. So consistency, as you uh, as you've just alluded to, is, is critical here because you've got to have a central approach. You've got to have uh, you know, a clear understanding of methodology. How do we do things? What is it uh, in terms of structure that we specifically follow? And that critical uh, for sure. However, the other the other part is the age old uh, you know adage of you know what's in it for me? Why are we doing this? Where is it we're trying to get to? What does this do um, that, that that I can be involved in or I can have an impact on? And ultimately, unless people make that connection to why is this good for me and how can I make a difference to potentially something so big? What can little old me do in this part of the business and really is it worthwhile? That's where you need to invest that effort um, in making sure that people clearly understand why we're doing it. This is the process of improvement. This is listening to you. This is wanting to react to where you are finding pain. And we can come in and we can support you with a range of uh, potential solutions. But ultimately, um, it's about making your life better and improving stuff that's been bothering you for a while. When we then talk strategically about bucketing that up and, and, and merging that all into to a series of programs, that's when we start to see the change that's needed. And then you start to see the sweet spot when it's on the turn, when people start to get it, see some results. And the critical part there is that we then recognize, reward, talk about, celebrate all of those small achievements, the, the levels of you know, a department that have been certified, um, the number of projects that have been delivered and what they have delivered and how that benefited the business. So that we can then plug that back in and people say, yeah, actually, what I'm doing makes a difference. Uh, it's improved what I, you know, my working life around my job, um, where I spend most of my time in life is at, is at work. If I'm able to improve some of that, it, it, it feeds into to health, well-being, a whole range of things. The trouble is, though, Ed, is, and, and you know this as well as I do, is that people are very iffy about change and 
it's sometimes very difficult to get change to go through. I, I guess what I'm saying is that your perspective is that you're doing operational excellence well, but what about people that feel that change is imposed on them from above? Is that always going to be a, a, something you have to overcome? Yeah, I mean, look, if, we, if we talk about it in real terms, you know, an organization the size of circles, you know, there are going to be hits and misses when you're deploying and starting this, this journey. The key bit is, you know, are we learning quickly and where it didn't work or where the deployment was slow? How have we done, uh, you know, a, a reflective period in saying this is, the, you know, why didn't it work? What, what are the issues there? And for me, nine times out of 10, it's about uh, resolving potentially uh, existing issues within that workforce. If the workforce or the team or the part of the business is in a space where it's got other stuff going on, if you don't look at the operational landscape that you're walking into first and identify and sort of sure that up, um, then it doesn't matter what you're selling unless you, 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 you know, show some of that emotional intelligence and, and steady the landscape. You're not going to get the buy-in. Your point about, you know, um, change being done onto you. Absolutely. That's a, that's a risk with all change. Um, and that's about how good you are at communicating that purpose. You know, is it authentic? Is it credible? Do people believe what you're saying? You know, is it change for change's sake? And like any organization, there will be parts of the business that are change fatigued. You know, we, we work in a very agile, um, you know, um, competitive marketplace. You know, we need to adapt and, and, and respond to that frequently. And so we have to be very cognizant of the impact of that on our people. But again, it's about stepping into that rhythm about what is not going away. This is a, you know, strategic direction for our business. We can prove that it delivers benefits. We can prove and show you and demonstrate to you that not only are we upskilling you and giving you something new that, you know, adds to your CV and is recognized independently, but it makes your, it makes your day job easier. And so not always easy. People are, um, you know, complex beings, but in terms of, uh, you know, an approach to that, if I believe at your core, you're interested in genuine improvement to better the, the quality of people's working lives, that does end up translating because they get it. It either will or it won't make my, my job better and I either will or I won't see the benefit. The issue you've got is if you keep introducing change that doesn't do any of those things, uh, then it's really difficult for you to come back and credibly talk about some other concept you want to introduce or some other direction you want to take people on. I, I think a lot of people are worried about certainly the change of automation that's come in and you use the word credibility. Rightly or wrongly, people think that the robots are going to come in and steal their jobs. So the question is, one, how much of a role do you think automation is playing in Serco and how much will it will it go on to affect Serco? And two, is has it been difficult getting people on board with that? Or, or how do you get people on board with automation? So so absolutely, you know, certainly within our finance community, we're looking at, you know, how, you know, how we can, in a, in a back office environment, look to automation and streamlining. Um, from a digital perspective, um, and that that is ultimately, um, you know, an inevitability of where we are going commercially. That that will play a bigger and bigger part within circo within industry. That that's just the way that, that things are. Ultimately, we deliver frontline, complex, messy, chunky public services. So there is no bot that's going to come in and uh, run run a hospital or a prison or a a railway or, you know, air traffic control or you name it. 
um, we we need that human touch and we need that that delivered by by people. So from a frontline perspective, it's not something that we're facing as an issue that people think that's going to come in and replace their 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 jobs. And so therefore, it's not something that we need to uh, that, that we need to be um, communicating or worrying about with, with our folks. The reality, however, is that as a as a group. Um, and, and behind the scenes, absolutely, we are looking to um, you know digital solutions to to improve and, and streamline um, and make that back office process and function more more efficient. That, it's a bit of a journey, so so we started on that journey and it's evolving. Um, we are embracing it and we embrace tech uh, heavily within Circo, and so you know we will see that evolve. Uh, you know, as time goes on. But to, to answer your question, in terms of fear from the front line, um, this is an acute issue that will, that will impact all jobs. That, that's just not where we're at right now. So what is the point of having all this automation? Is it, is it just to make people's lives better or or what? Because certainly some places are using it to reduce headcount. There, there is a, there is a, you know, a resource conversation with you know what what tools do you need to do the job profitably and most effectively that that is 101 of business when when that happens it will tilt either way it will either have an impact directly on reducing headcount or it will stay as it is or or actually it's not going to add the benefit that you thought that it was going to add and so on there there will ultimately be scenarios where headcount will be reduced because automation can take over the point that i'm making is that where where we are we are at it's it's about making sure that with an organization of our size and scale you can imagine the 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 number of processes, reports, the the mechanics of operating the business, our accounting functions, our finance communities. If we can introduce automation to a number of those processes, the net impact will be significant. At that point, you then look to see what the impact of that, that, that may be on resource. But that's not the driver. The conversation is always about what is the most efficient way to run our business. One of the reasons why I find business absolutely endlessly interesting, once you get into the nitty gritty of it, is that they're all essentially human endeavors. They're about individuals putting their stamp on something or about groups of individuals working towards a common purpose. What Edward's saying about how robots are coming in and doing all the dull jobs, the things that people don't like doing, that leaves humans to be much more human. If we're gonna be more human, does that mean we have to be more individual? And as we're talking a lot of, about diversity and inclusion these days, how does that all feed into the mix? Yeah, so we invest heavily in diversity and inclusion. Um, oftentimes we talk about diversity and inclusion as the same thing. And, you know, I'm very passionate about drawing the distinction that inclusion and diversity are not the same thing. And often I see repackaged diversity um, initiatives being called inclusion initiatives. If we talk about the performance of people, if we create inclusive environments where people are comfortable being themselves within those environments, and they're not worried about hiding who they are, they're not worried that they're going to face discrimination because of who they are, guess what happens to productivity? When people um, are released from the shackles of fear and hiding and uh, and worry and, and nervousness about you know who they actually are, they can then focus their attention on uh, their performance. But for me, it starts with the place that it is morally and ethically the right thing to do. We, we need to make people feel comfortable within 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 industry, and we have a responsibility 
to create environments where they can be, them, be themselves. When we talk about a business case, I sometimes I've had to evolve my, my thinking on this, but you know, I used to think that's like me trying to give you a business case for smoke alarms while standing outside a burning building. You know, we can see the impact of women in senior positions. We can see the impact of Black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities. We understand the concerns around people who, who want to start families and the impact on their career or disability, mobility, neurodiversity, uh, you know, ageism, you name it. We can, we can find it in industry. And therefore, you know, a business case to resolve that for me starts with actually we need our organizations to be reflective of the societies in which they operate. Interesting you talk about your own evolution, because I think we're all in a state of evolving, you know, constantly. And we're going through another evolution at the moment, aren't we? Certainly, certainly with Black Lives Matter coming up a lot in the news. It seems that organizations can evolve ahead of the rest of society. Do you think there's a lag? Uh, evolving ahead of society is best practice and where I want organizations to be. I don't want us to have to wait to be forced into a gender pay gap conversation or an ethnicity pay gap conversation. You know, smart businesses understand the value of getting this right. And actually, that if you, you know, for me, it's an indicator of how, how plugged in you are to the, 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 you know, the positive impact of, of inclusive environment. Because if you're if you're hunting it down and you're trying to get better, you're telling them that you see it's value and therefore you're, you're building that into your growth strategy. So I agree with you on that. There is, without question, a real issue facing the LGBT community. Let's be under absolutely no illusion. They are completely under attack. If you look at the press, you know, you compared that to the way the gay community was treated in the 1980s, you would draw absolute parallels. You see the same thing. This hysteria, this fear mongering, you know, the, the gay community in the 80s were AIDS carrying, society destroying, abominations. The trans community and the trans argument has been funneled into such a, a narrow point that you would be forgiven for believing that trans men don't exist. We don't hear about them. Uh, non binary people don't exist. We don't hear about them. The whole argument is trans women who are essentially men in frocks who've nipped down to the local change rooms so that they can sexually assault cis women. I mean, we've got to, we've got to have a bit of perspective here. We've got to learn the lessons from, you know, how we're being led in a debate and led in an argument to take a moment of reflection and say, actually, do we need, um, you know, a more rounded view of this? Am I getting my information from the right sources? Is this really? I mean, I don't know about you, but the women in my life, my mom, my sisters, my aunties, you know, you name it, my friends, they are not staying awake at night believing that their, um, you know, their rights as women have been eroded. This, this hysteria sells papers. It's great clickbait, but it, it, it's, it's ludicrous in my view. And when we talk about allyship and being a friend to the Black Lives Matter movement or our disabled brothers or sisters or you name it, whoever it may be. My my call to action is that, that, that we don't feed and buy into this hysteria for the trans community. They are on a journey and, and absolutely need our support. Um, a whole range of folks can have an opinion on, on what they believe um, it's like or the reason that these communities feel a particular way. And, you know, at, at some point we've got to say, do you know what? We, wake up. That's not how we understand communities. And the trans community are trying to tell us a story. And for me, it's about listening to that and making a commitment to listen to, to the lived experiences of 
backing. Is it in your background that makes you want to listen to people in that way? I think growing up in Northern Ireland through the Troubles, um, I was I, I grew up in the back end of the Troubles. My family um, survived it relatively intact, not for any other reason but by luck. Um, my mother was queuing with my auntie Marie um, at their favourite cafe. One day, my uh, auntie Marie had cold feet, a bit chilly, and so they came out of the queue and they headed home on the bus. You know, when they got home, they heard that uh, it was a horrific explosion in that cafe, and um, uh, you know, many many were killed. My father, he was standing at a phone box uh, in our local town, um, and a car engine landed next to the phone box where there'd been a where there'd been a huge car bomb. I don't talk about the fact that you know we are impacted directly, but I grew up in an environment where, you know, it was an uncomfortably close call um, at times. And that has an impact on you. I grew up as a as a Catholic in a Protestant town. So I was a minority within that town. Um, and then I was gay. So uh, I was a, minor- a minority within a minority. And so that background really gives me an insight into the importance of making sure that we don't ingrain people in their positions. You know, I can't look to progress in the future if I don't understand where you're coming from. And actually understanding what your fear is, what it is you're trying to say, what your angle is, what is it? There was a rally recently outside an event that I was at, which was cis women who were protesting against trans women and everybody was ignoring them you know just ignore them close the curtains you know give them but i had to go out i had to you know i know that i I wasn't necessarily going to go get anywhere but i just had to have the dialogue it's something that's in me to say what is what are you trying to say because oftentimes when we don't face into it we give it a lot more oxygen than it needs and but and that engagement has taught me over the years that if i can either get what you're saying or I hear what you're saying and think it's ludicrous and I'm glad that we've had the conversation because now I can talk confidently about how much I disagree or or my, my views on your issues. You know, we're not going to evolve a conversation. We're not going to drive change. Um, I've seen when it goes very wrong firsthand and what that does to communities, what that does to prosperity, and what it does to mental health. And yeah, I'm absolutely passionate about making sure that that I influence change in all the things I do. And my legacy is someone who did did a small bit to try and move this agenda forward. I'm interested in that idea about people not not confronting it. I think one of the things that annoys me most is when people say, when people talk in code, such as, we've taken our country back. At the moment, people seem to be speaking less in code. I mean, the language is ugly and the things that they're saying are awful. But I think at least you're actually saying this. At least you're saying, I don't like these people. I don't like them. And at least you're beginning the confrontation. Do you think it's it's a positive thing that we're going through, painful though it might be? There's two sides to it for me. So, you know, ultimately, when we move from, you know, the 80s, uh, you know, in society and in business, we could have said the most horrific things, even at a board level. You know, we have evolved since then. We have moved since then. And there's an argument to say that actually it's become more subtle as opposed to overt. Some of that hasn't gone away. The biggest impacts we have are the fact that we're breeding it out of our boardrooms, you know, as generations change and we're going to see some of the biggest 
generational culture shifts over the next 10 years with generations uh, Y and Z and, 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 and the preparation for, for generation alpha to come after that. The next 10 years is going to see that completely change and organizations who don't get that will absolutely fail to attract the right talent and, and certainly retain it. There is a positive aspect to making it more subtle um, because then we start to focus on the institutional or systemic elements of it. When it's overt, yes, it's easy to spot um, and it's easy to take um, you know, a particular course of action. Those incidents um, are easier to deal with. The issue that we then have is this subtlety filters uh, throughout uh, systems and processes and policy and procedure and behavior and culture. And the, the real work starts uh, getting at that. So there's a disadvantage to the overt stuff that we're seeing today. On the one hand, yes, it's great because if I hear it, I A, know your position, I B, know the course of action that I can take, um, whether or not you've breached policy, procedure, law, whatever that may be. But actually, it's taken us back because I then have to start from ground zero with you around conversations about why it is or it isn't acceptable. That is a really immature uh, part of the change curve that we're starting from. The problem is the rate and speed of change. And how do we accelerate that? You know, if we look at women in business, if you think of the, the time, the effort it's taken to get women who are, you know, 50% of our society, that's how hard and difficult that struggle to be. If that's the rate of change for, for one of the more palatable protected characteristics like gender, have a think about the rate of change for trans people. Um, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities, first world communities, working age, disabled people. Uh, you know, the rate of change has got to be our focus. And that's what I'm, what I'm really sort of passionate about is how do we speed, how do we speed this up? And, and to an extent, if I hear something really overt, it helps me speed it up because it just needs to be dealt with. Um, the more complex social, geopolitical type stuff takes a bit more. Ed Jervis, we're running out of time, but before we go, my my last question is the dinner party game, except with my business twist. So you can have anybody you like to a business lunch. They can be alive, dead, fictional, or real. Ed Jervis, who is your business lunch guest? <laughs> no pressure. That's like one of those interview questions you wish you'd prepared for, right? Uh, who would I have at a business lunch? I suppose I'd want to make it a bit interesting. Um, I'd want to um, have a bit of crack, as they say in in, uh, in Ireland. Um, Quentin Crisp. Now, would not be an interesting character at a business lunch. What a fascinating uh, person and what a fascinating life. I don't um, think yeah. you'd get it all into the one lunchtime. I think it would go I on and I think you'd end up paying for it. <laughs> Right? And, and money well spent as well. I'd, I'd pay that every time. I just read a brilliant book by a guy called Matthew Sion uh, called Rebel Ideas. Um, and it's switched me on to uh, some brilliant concepts and some different ways of thinking. Um, so he would be a, a, a great character to have. And a, a lady called uh, Rini Edo Lodge uh, wrote a book about uh, why I'm no longer talking um, to white people about race. I think that would be, um, we'd have an intimate, interesting little lunch with that. With that. that would, there'd be three fascinating people and uh, I shudder to think what the bar bill would be 
after Quentin <laughs> Christmas being there. Ed Jervis, thank you so much indeed for your time today. What a lovely conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Huge thanks once again to Ed Jervis. Some really interesting, thought-provoking stuff going on there. If you'd like to make any comments on the show, please do find me on LinkedIn. That's where I love to communicate with people. And if you have anybody in mind for a guest on an upcoming show, someone that's changed the world in some way, could be big, could be small, could be kind of random, by all means, do put us in touch with one another and we'll see where we go. If you haven't already, do check out the archive. We've had some fantastic guests. Hit that subscribe button. My name's Ian Hawkins. Have a great time till the next time.